Let's open it in a word of prayer, if you would, with me, bow your hearts. Father, again, we come to you, knowing that every time I open up your word, Lord, I, I need to get myself out of the way. It needs to be about you. It's about your truth, and it's about you speaking to hearts. And anything that is going to be accomplished spiritually, anything that is of value and meaningful is going to come from your word and the Holy Spirit working within us. So I pray that you will just take this broken vessel, Lord, and, and use me, Lord, to communicate your truth here. Help us as those are receiving it, Lord. I pray as well to just, just be like a sponge that is eager, anxious to have God speak to us. Thank you, in thy name we pray. Amen. All right, if you remember, um, just a little before Christmas, uh, we began a series on the life of Christ, and we started out with the birth of Christ. Uh, last week, we took a look at Christ's childhood, and to not much surprise, we realized that there's really not a lot mentioned about how Christ grew up. Remember, we had that one incident when he was 12 years old, where when his family went back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, when they took off, he kind of stayed behind, and they came back and found him, you know, teaching the teachers um, in, in the temple. And then we have verses like Luke 2.40 that say, and the, and the child Jesus grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then pretty much, that's it. You know, 30 years of his upbringing, of his growing, we really have very little concerning Jesus Christ. And so now we suddenly jump ahead. Christ is about 30 years old, and all is in place for him to begin his public ministry. Now, that ministry of Jesus Christ is going to be announced through a forerunner, and that forerunner, I'd like to take a couple of Sundays and take a look at him. I want to do some introductory work this morning, talking about John the Baptist, and then next week we're going to get in a little bit deeper to the message of John the Baptist. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'd like you to take your Bibles out if you would. Turn to Matthew chapter 3, 1 through 6. Kind of stay there the whole time. We'll bring in a few other verses. But when you get there, I invite you to stand together with me as God's word is read. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, if you'll stand. It says, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the districts around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, as they confessed their sins. Maybe seated. So you'll remember that John the Baptist is actually the cousin of Jesus Christ. If we went to Luke's Gospel, it tells about John's miraculous birth to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Remember, Zechariah was a priest in the temple and he was serving in the temple. And, and an angel came to him and spoke to him and, and told them he and his wife, who were well past childbearing years, that they were going to have a son. And that son was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. It's also Zechariah 
and Elizabeth's house, that if you remember after Mary, the mother of Jesus, after she finds out that she is with child, she goes and she stays with her relatives, you know, Elizabeth, who is also pregnant at the same time, about six months farther along than Mary is, and she is pregnant with John the Baptist. Um, you remember what happened when they came together. It says as Mary entered the house, you know, she's pregnant with Christ. Christ is in her womb. And you've got Elizabeth, who has John the Baptist in, in his womb. And it says suddenly when, when Mary entered, and, you know, the, 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 the Christ child entered the womb, that, that suddenly John, you know, began to leap in her womb, you know, at the excitement that Jesus Christ was there. And it's this verse that, or that verse, that early in the 1900s, where the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal movement, used for whenever the Holy Spirit comes, whenever Christ, is, the presence is there, where they leap and they jump. Okay, that's not true. I'm catfishing you guys. But I do want to make a point here. You know, when Jesus Christ's presence is here, when the Holy Spirit comes, when we sing songs like we just sang, and we are overwhelmed, you know, wouldn't it, would it hurt us a little bit to let that out? I mean, here, here is a, a child in his mother's womb at the presence of the Savior. Hallelujah! You know, and she's like, whoa! You know, you got to think that. But maybe there's just a little, there's something there for us to learn about what happens when Jesus Christ comes into our presence, that he's truly in our life, and the Holy Spirit touches our hearts. So, just like Christ, not as a lot is known about John the Baptist and about his upbringing. We know, as I said earlier, his father is Zechariah, his mother Elizabeth. Uh, Zechariah was a priest, so we can make some assumptions that John is very familiar with the law. He's probably raised, he understands the religious system, he knows all about uh, the temple. But it's kind of interesting, just like Jesus Christ, the first we hear about John the Baptist, I mean, the verse tells us that, you know, Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the regions around the Jordan, that all these people are coming out to him. And again, they didn't have technology like we have that, you know, suddenly they announced this great gathering and, you know, so it happened in a week and it formed that all these people were coming out to him. You got to think that he's been out there. He has been preaching. He has been proclaiming Jesus Christ. He's been proclaiming the coming Messiah you know, probably for months, maybe a year, he's been telling people. And now he's out at the Jordan, and, 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 and people are just flocking to hear the message, to hear what God has to say. Uh, as a matter of fact, the abruptness of which he burst upon the scene kind of causes many Jews to think that he was the prophet Elijah. In Malachi chapter uh, 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, we got that. It says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and the terrible day of the Lord. This was the prophecy that they were looking for. Before their king was going to come and set up his kingdom, that Elijah or someone in that same spirit was going to be coming back. And, and they kind of, you know, identified John the Baptist like that because they had very similar ministries. You know, the same rough garb. You know, John the Baptist had camel skins. You know, they lived aesthetic lives. They were isolated from society. You know, the, they, they kinda, their message was a protest against the corruption that was going on around them. Matter of fact, the later, uh, later the disciples questioned Christ about this concerning John the Baptist. 
And it says in Matthew chapter 17, 11 through 13, And Jesus answered and said, Elijah is coming, and he will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And this is, you know, past John the Baptist here. He already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then their disciples understood that he has spoken to them about John the Baptist. So in other words, you know, John the Baptist was fulfilling that, that, that prophecy of Elijah had they accepted Christ as their Messiah, you know, that he was one of them that, you know, had come before and was prophesied to come before the Messiah. Uh, John's ministry, it's described in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 3. It says, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when it said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path paths straight. So it refers back to the book of Isaiah, and this is the direct quote and a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And it's kind of interesting where this, this promise comes in the book of Isaiah. If you remember, the book of Isaiah kind of can be divided into two sections. Chapter 1 through chapter 39, you know, the prophet is basically calling out the sin of Israel, calling down, you know, the, the coming condemnation of God. Because they have turned away from God, they have turned to idols. But starting in chapter 40 till chapter 66, even though God is going to judge Israel, the last part of the book is about God then comforting Israel that God is going to redeem Israel to himself. And part of that comfort is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 through 5, and I'll read that for you. It says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your Lord. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, both Isaiah and the writer of Gospel, Matthew, here, are calling upon an ancient practice to describe the ministry of John the Baptist. Isaiah was describing the ministry of the one who is going to be coming before the Messiah. Um, we call John the forerunner of Jesus Christ, and for right reasons here. An ancient forerunner, their job would be to go before the king, wherever he was going to be traveling. If he was going to be traveling to another town or a long distance, he would travel that road where the king was going, and he would, he would prepare it. If there were you know, trees in the way, they'd be removed. If there were ruts in the road, they would be filled out. He would make the way smooth for the king. You know, holes filled in, roads would be leveled. He'd alarm the villagers and tell them, the king is coming. You know, so the streets and the people would be ready for the coming king. It'd be kind of like us if the, you know, a dignitary, a president of the United States was going to tour Ohio when he found out that he was the path he was going to be taking was down Milton Carlisle Road. Well, you know, they'd have people all out here checking out this road, making sure it's ready, filling in the potholes, straightening things out, you know, preparing for the dignitary who was going to be coming through. And so this is the ministry of John the Baptist to, G 
to Jesus Christ. John's job, his ministry, was to alert the people and let them be prepared for Christ's coming. This was the Christ. This is the same Christ who John the Baptist, and we'll look at next week, but the very first time he sees Jesus. He points to Jesus Christ, and he points the people to Christ, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This was John's ministry. For that moment, to prepare the people, and then to say, The King is coming, the King is here, and to introduce them to Jesus Christ. And from that moment, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, from that moment on, Remember John's words, what he said about his own self and his own ministry? He said of Jesus Christ that he must increase and I must decrease. I mean, think about it here. You know, Christ at the beginning of his ministry, John already has, you know, people flocking out to him, traveling long distances to hear his preaching, to be baptized of him. And John says, it's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. He's the one, you know, don't get caught up with me. Get caught up with Jesus Christ. And from that point, he does. His ministry decreases while the ministry of Jesus Christ increase. One day, um, Christ was talking to his disciples about John. This is um, at the end of the ministry here. And he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 7 through 11, it says, as these men were going away, we'll put that up, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's places. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, the one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before me. And then this. These are the words of Jesus. It says, Truly I say to you, among those born of woman, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Truly I say to you, among those who are born of a woman, anybody who has been born, who has come in this world, who has lived living now, has lived in the past, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. I mean, think about that statement for just a, quest, for a moment here. I mean, think about Moses. I mean, he's used by God to deliver his people, Israel, out of slavery. You know, God used Moses, you know, in his message to, you know, the, the ten plagues, these miraculous things, and, and to lead his people out. Think about David, the greatest king in Israel's history. And Joshua, the great conqueror of the military battles for Israel. Think about Samuel, the prophet. And Jesus Christ says, amongst anyone who has ever been born of a woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist. And this greatest person who has ever been born he spent his life telling other people. He spent his life preparing people to meet Jesus Christ. And this greatest person ever born, he humbled himself before Christ. You know, he said, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. That's how great Jesus is. 
And that's in the light of the greatness of John the Baptist. And I I thought about this earlier this week in my office, and I, I tell you, this gives us a pretty good idea of what we should be doing with our lives as a Christian. I mean, don't we have a ministry similar to John the Baptist? Aren't we supposed to be preparing people? Aren't we supposed to be preparing sinners to meet their Savior, Jesus Christ? Alerting them that the Savior has come, that Christ has died for their sins? Isn't that, aren't we those, those forerunners of Christ? And certainly a sign of spiritual maturity, of Christian maturity in our life, would be God becoming greater and us becoming less. That my life becomes more about Jesus Christ and less about Larry Marvel and my wants and my desires and my plans, but more about Jesus Christ. You know, if the greatest man who ever lived spent his life focused on that, little indication as a Christian, as a church, what we need to be focusing on. And John's message was very simple. He said in verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for God is coming. Now that word repent there in the Greek, it's metanoio. It means to change one's mind. It involves a turning from one thing and turning to something else. And so when we apply it to our faith, when you try to apply it to Jesus Christ... We talk about turning away from our sin and turning to God. And that's what true repentance is. And it's unfortunate that we've really watered this word down today. I mean, we see people all over the place claiming a religious experience, claiming to have repented, and and yet there's barely a turning away from their old life, uh, let less a turning to God and including God in their life. And, And even amongst Christians... We're so eager to proclaim someone's salvation, you know, to want to announce that seven people got saved, that not much stock is put into the need of turning away from sin and turning to God. That's what salvation is. That's what repentance is. You know, that's what being a Christian and becoming a Christian is all about. Of acknowledging ourselves and our sin, choosing to turn away from it, and choosing that God is the answer through his son, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we repent, we're turning our back on the world, turning away from the world, and we are turning to Jesus Christ. And so I just challenge you at this point, you know, we need to to take a long look at our life. You know, have we repented? Do we have God's repentance? You know, repented from our sin? Have we turned away from our sin? Are we turned to God? Is your life facing God? Are you walking towards God? Are you seeking? Are you pursuing him? Now the last part of John's life, um, I want to look at, the the last thing I want to look at this morning is concerning his baptism. You know, he's called John the Baptist. Uh, The Baptist wasn't his last name. That was just what he was known for. You know, his name is John, and, and he is out in the wilderness. He is out in the Jordan out by the Jordan, and, and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands are coming to him and hearing him speak, and they're repenting. They're turning from their sin. They're turning towards God, and then he is baptizing them. And it says in verse 5 and 6, Then Jerusalem was going out to him in all of Judea and all the districts around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River 
as they confessed their sins. I want to talk about baptism for just a little bit here. We're going to get into this uh, deeper next week. Um, But the word baptism in in Greek, you know, it's, it's baptizo. The word translated in English means to dip or to immerse. And this word baptizo here isn't necessarily a religious word. That isn't where it started out. As a matter of fact, it was first used to describe the fuller's trade, those who dealt in cloth, you know, workers with cloth material and, and with wool. And that cloth that they received, and we're talking about, you know, 2,000 years ago, this wool that they would get off the sheep, this wool is woven, and when it is, is made into a garment, it is dull, and it needs to be cleansed. And so, you know, the, the appearance of the cloth is changed by taking the cloth and it's immersed in bleach. You know, so it is, it, it, it's, it's baptized in bleach. And that's where the word literally comes from, to be immersed into bleach. And then when it comes out, it is white. And then it can be used for whatever else it's going to do. If they're going to add dye to it and make it purple or something, some other color along those lines, then they would be able to do that. But that first step of of, of baptizing the cloth is a cleansing process. It's it's a making the cloth ready for what it's been intended for. Now, I believe that it is scriptural that a person repents from their sins. They need to accept Christ's forgiveness. And then they need to follow God's commandment to be baptized. I personally... I believe in immersion for baptism. You know, meaning of the Greek word is obvious, and certainly the example of, of John in Scripture and taking them out to the Jordan and, and baptizing them, immersing them. You know, baptism is an external sign of something that God has done inwardly to us. That the cross, the blood of Jesus Christ, has cleansed me from my sin. And that's something that happens internally to us. And, People can't see that. So God has given us this great, this great symbol of baptism for us to be able to declare to the world that we are Christians, that we're relying on Jesus Christ, that what he has done in my heart I now proclaim to you outwardly. So I believe it's a very important baptism that a Christian is baptized after they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Again, It's not part of the salvation process, but I believe it's very important. It's a very important declaration. I also believe that we have spent too much time in religious circles arguing about baptism. You know, some immerse, some sprinkle, some do it as infants, you know, some do it after conversion. Some people think, yeah, baptism is not that important. It's just about Jesus Christ. I accept him. It's really not important for you to be baptized. You know, some, you know, they, they say not, you won't receive the Holy Spirit until you're baptized. And I don't want to get into all those, those differences there. But unfortunately, this, this debate about baptism has taken us off the real purpose of it. We have spent so much time emphasizing the mode of baptism that we have forgotten the symbol. What's the purpose? And that's my real concern here to talk to you about. That's the real emphasis I want to end with us today. You know, the Old Testament Jews, again, remember this is all given back some 2,000 years ago in that culture. 
And the Old Testament Jews, they had a full understanding of the use of water for cleansing. You know, water in, in the Judaic system, you know, the Mosaic law was, was a symbol of cleansing. Um, in the book of Leviticus, you see water, you know, being used as a symbol of cleansing someone who has been defiled by sin. Matter of fact, the high priests, before they were to go in and, and, and begin to use the utensils or touch the things of God in the temple, they, they were told they had to cleanse themselves. They had to, to wash. If a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, wanted to proselyte into Judaism, they would be baptized. Um, and it would be a symbol that he was terminating his relationship with his old life, the old gods that the world serves, and that he was joining himself with the community of Israel. And, and you know, so, so they did it through baptism. Matter of fact, we'll put a couple pictures up here for you. Um, I've been to Israel a number of times, and there are these ritualistic uh, bathing areas all over the place that they use for cleansing ceremoniously. I, I think we have another one up here. Um, you know, and, and these things are all over Israel. So they understand stood that picture that they would go all the way into the water and they would, for the cleansing, that symbol of, of, of something that being immersed. So, so John, Jesus isn't introducing some new truth here to them. He's building upon something, you know, that they, they already understand. And, and, you know, this is what baptism is, that when you repent, when you turn from your sin and you turn to God, you are reborn. You are born again. You are a new creature. Creature. Remember, it says, "Old things are passed away; all things are become new." Baptism it becomes that symbol of that new life, that the dull, dirty wool has been cleansed. It's been changed, and now, you know, God can direct it and use it for what it was intended to do. And that's the beautiful symbol that we have here. Matter of fact, in First Peter. Chapter 3, verse 21. It says, corresponding to that, it says, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, when we have a baptismal service and we fill the tank back here, and we go down there and we do this, this, this ritualistic, this ceremonial cleaning. It says, not that removal of dirt from the flesh, but it's talking about a baptism of the heart, an appeal to God for for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an outward symbol of something that has happened within us. You know, baptism does not forgive our sins. Baptism doesn't take our sins away. That is only done through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you, if you doubt that, here you have John the Baptist. I mean, it says thousands upon thousands are flocking out to John the Baptist. If they had one inkling that John was saying, come here and to be baptized, go into the Jordan River with me, and, and let me immerse you down there, keep you up for the forgiveness of your sins, they would have stoned him. Remember what happened when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sin. And I mean, they were ready to kill Jesus and haul him out. They would have done that to John. So they understood what was happening back then when John was baptizing in the Jordan. Remember, they were understanding because they had those ritualistic bathing places, the washing places, um, all over Jerusalem. And so, so, so again, you know, baptism is not, you know, the, the act of going into the water is not an act of our salvation. It is an obedience of our salvation. 
Now, this is going to be a good place uh, for me to stop right here um, and because, you know, I, I want to go into a little bit farther with John next week. But I, I want to give us three things to consider. Three things that you to consider. Number one, I just want to ask you the question, have you repented of your sins? I mean, I don't want to just talk on the surface of this and skip on the surface of this and we say, oh, this is really good information. This is recorded for us to look at our own lives. You know, have we turned from our sin and our have we turned to God? We do that through the cross, through confessing ourselves a sinner in, in, in need of a Savior and accepting Christ into our heart. I mean, if you think you have, you say, well, yeah, yeah, I, I think I've done that. But if you look at your life and you don't see any turning from your, the world and turning from your own life, or you certainly don't see any turning in pursuit of God, you know, again, I just challenge you, you know, step back, look at your life, understand what rep true repentance is, you know, salvation is not fire insurance. It's the beginning of a walk with God. It's about restoring a broken relationship with God. Have you done that today? Have you repented and come to Jesus Christ? Second thing I want to talk to you about is have you been baptized? It's important to be baptized. After you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know, the, he gives us this great symbol, an opportunity for us to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. And for you to do that personally, you know, have you been baptized? I mean, don't let anyone minimize the importance of a saved sinner obeying the Lord's command and being baptized. I mean, it's interesting, even Christ was baptized. You know, he wasn't baptized for, you know, because, he, you know, he repented of his sins because he was sinless. But it says, in, if you go in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, it says, Jesus, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted it him. So even Jesus, you know, as, as the symbol that they understood, he went and he was baptized. And so I want to encourage you. We are probably going to be having a baptismal service, I'm guessing, towards the end of March. If you would like to be part of that baptism service, if you would like to make that public declaration, you need to come and see me over the next few weeks and let me know that you want to be part of it. And then as we get closer, we'll, we'll solidify a date after we have a number of people that want to be baptized. The third thing that I want to draw out of this, number three, are we as children of God, if we are Christians here, are we truly acting as the forerunners of Jesus Christ? In my life, in my faith, am I preparing the way for the Lord by the way I live my life, by the testimony when people look at me? I mean, is, am, am I drawing sinners and, and, and helping them know who's coming and who has come and what Jesus Christ has done for me? Am I fulfilling that, that ministry of being a forerunner, alerting the people to repent, alerting that the Savior has, has come for them? You know, sometimes, you know, we've assumed, you know, that the, the, you know, the attitude, well, you know, people don't need to know or they can find out by themselves. Well, then why did Christ send John? 
And that's why he has us here as a church. That's why he has us here as individuals. Does the community, does our neighborhood, these communities that we represent all around us, do the people at your workplace, do they know of your faith in Jesus Christ? Is your life, your hope, the way that you handle problems, struggles, the way that you give glory to God, is that, is that pointing people to Jesus Christ, to the one who we're not even worthy to untie his shoelaces? Have we assumed that same mind that John had, that Christ must increase and I must decrease? Or is my lifestyle, my desires kind of shoving Christ into the corner of my life? He's still there, but it's not about Jesus. It's about me. Father, I'm going to ask you to search our hearts here. Lord, I, I know, you know, people are sitting here, and Lord, we are all over the place in our walk and our relationship with you and our need for you. And so if it is salvation, Father, I pray that right now, today might be a day that someone opens up their heart to say that I surrender my life to you. That, Father, I accept your forgiveness on the cross to forgive my sins. I want to I turn from that life and I want to turn to you. And as hearts are doing that, Lord, we so thank you for that. I know we've had you know, many come and just this last spring so many of our children came, came to know Christ. God, as you are working in hearts of, of those who have made that decision, Lord, you know, I pray for just a boldness in their faith. And even that first step you know, to stand before this congregation and proclaim their faith. And then finally, Father, I pray that you truly might increase in our life and we might decrease. That, Lord, our focus might be as the ministry of John the Baptist to let other people know that the Savior has come, the Messiah is here. Thank you, Lord. In thy son's name we pray. Amen.